surge pricing for hamburgers, you're listening to Motley Fool Money. Surge pricing for hamburgers, you're listening to Motley Fool Money. I'm Ricky Mulvey, joined today by Bill Barker. Bill, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with Zoom earnings, because the investors seem to be pleased by the latest quarter. Operating income and billings beat analyst forecasts. There's a little bit of a dip in growth that they're saying they're going to make up for later in the year. Before we dive in, are there any headline takeaways for you from this beaten up former growth stock? Uh, no, I, the thing that is most striking to me, I guess, is just the the growth curve here, which you know it, it did about uh, eight times the business uh, at the within two years uh, of the beginning of the pandemic that it had done, and it was growing pretty rapidly going into the pandemic. But uh, in the last two years, it's not quite flatline, but not even really kept up uh, with the level of inflation. Uh, so uh, they're talking about, uh, oh, you know, sort of a slow first half, but we'll start making up the growth in the second half. And I always throw a couple grains of salt onto the second half looks so much better than the first half guidance. Well, that's not until the AI kicks in. So the, the bull story for, for Zoom. That CEO Eric Yuan is 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 selling is about AI, and in for, in case you've missed the first mention of AI, there were five more mentions, additional mentions in the first five sentences. The story is that Zoom's more than video conferencing. You have generative AI that can help summarize meetings, make businesses more productive, and also become not just video, but a full workplace solution where you can reserve desks, see how your direct reports are doing. We'll even have a messaging app. That um, competes with Slack, maybe that's enough to restart the growth engine. Sure, maybe. Uh, I think that uh, <laughs> no one's expecting it, particularly. I think Zoom has done a phenomenal job of embedding itself into a lot of people's work lives and and even beyond work, uh, social lives at times to uh, meet with friends or family over Zoom. Uh, but uh, it's it's embedded a. Uh, a lot of that already, and uh, the things that it points to to charge the future growth are more and more tangential to its central purpose and use to date. And if AI adds some growth uh, to it, it'll be in a large category of stocks that can make that claim, and it's making that claim uh, before the growth is here, with the hopes that it'll come true. So, I want to the, the part on Zoom being embedded is something I want to focus on. There's a mention from the CEO I want to discuss. He said, quote, We became more disciplined and focused while continuing to prioritize growth opportunities. As a result, we be as a result, we are much better positioned than we were one year ago. Our platform moat is deeper, our contact center offering is more robust, and our go-to-market teams are primed with defined goals and sharpened expertise to drive growth and empower customers. End quote. The part I'm focused on there is our platform moat is deeper. As people use Zoom, maybe the longer they use it, the less like they, likely they are to leave. But one of the big bear cases is that you know Microsoft Teams has options. So does Google. So I will ask you: Does Zoom have a moat? Uh, yes, Zoom has a a moat, uh, and it is not a particularly 
a deep or wide moat for the reasons that you've just brought up, but it is uh, in use. Uh, there are some switching costs for enterprises. There are some switching costs for uh, individuals, even if they're using it for free. Uh, the familiarity with it and perhaps the growing familiarity with these new applications, such as the AI tools and the the, the conference summaries and things like that. Uh, so there are reasons uh, why it becomes a little harder, uh, or even you know, quite annoying to to switch over an entire company's uh, work on onto Teams or or Google uh, when they've already gotten used to Zoom. If it's uh, competitively priced, that switching cost is in terms of the hours and the the learning curve is enough to keep uh, keep some business around but you know we we were originally going to uh, record this on Zoom and we for one reason or another uh, it was my reason it was on my side uh, we 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 just switched to something else to do the same work we did although bill i am curious if this is a zoom problem or a bill problem it's not a bill problem it's a it's a bill's laptop problem Okay, uh, which we'll is uh, slightly different, as as identified as we all are uh, with our laptops these <laughs> days. Uh, we are separable, and uh, in this particular case, uh, it is uh, not my fault. Okay, we will. It's a rare case that's, where, that's where any technology that I'm unable to get to use is not my fault, but the the uh, hardware's fault. But uh, this is such a case. All right. Well, let's talk about the repurchase plan because that's grabbing some headlines for Zoom. Zoom's board authorized $1.5 billion in buybacks. Woo! That's a lot of money. Uh, however, Zoom also spent $1.3 billion on stock-based comp over the past year, according to YCharts. So, they're starting this buyback. Is it, is it meaningful? Does it signal anything? I think that you have uh, accurately summed up how meaningful it is. If it's a pretty fair fight between the buyback and the stock-based compensation, then it is not meaningful in the sense of reducing share count. It's meaningful in the sense of preventing share count from continuing to be diluted, which it has been over the last four or five years. I think uh, there's about 20-25% dilution on uh, the you know increased use of shares to uh, compensate employees and management. So, you know maybe this uh, slows or uh, stops, uh, but it's a very different kind of buyback than one that uh, shareholders should truly get uh, excited about. Zoom's got a lot of money. It's got seven billion in cash, so this is uh, easy uh, easy to finance, no debt. If they're not going to Show a lot of growth. This is one way to possibly uh, grow earnings per share by reducing share count. Uh, but we'll see over the next year whether it's executed uh, and whether it actually reduces share count or just sort of uh, keeps it steady. Uh, at, you know, as measured against all the shares that are still being used to compensate employees. Let's talk about another type of buybacks, and that's with AutoZone. But first, we'll start with the new CEO. There's a new guy in town, even though he's been there for 30 years. It's Philip Danielle. Bill Rhodes was at the helm of AutoZone for 18 years. This is the first quarter for Danielle. Any any impressions of the the new guy who's been there for 30 years? Uh, I think it's too early to make uh, you know much uh, of of a call, as you say. He's he's been there uh, for 30 years, so we don't expect, and he's been in 
high position, so we don't expect there to be a, a big departure from the winning formula uh, that AutoZone has employed for the last couple of decades. Uh, previous CEO is, is moving to chair. So, uh, I think that uh, it's, it's more of a steady as she goes until we have reason to think otherwise. Some highlights from the quarter, to the extent there are highlights. AutoZone continued to decrease inventory, also pointed out higher merchandise margins for, for getting essentially flat-ish sales to a higher operating profit. Domestic sales, same-store sales, essentially flat, but international same-store sales up 11% on a constant currency basis. Also, 26 net new stores but they have a total store count of more than 7000 anything anything really stand out to you you know the thing to keep an eye on in terms of looking at the growth because the domestic growth uh, is not likely to be uh, that exciting is the international expansion uh, that is a possible uh, thing to keep an eye on with the new CEO. Are they going to be more aggressive in expanding internationally and can continue to be more aggressive expanding internationally as they have been in the last few years compared to the domestic operation, which is not quite saturated. They, they're in a fairly dominant position with O'Reilly continuing to take market share from Advance Auto and, and the continuing fragmentation uh, of, of the industry for uh, auto supplies, but uh, I think that uh, there there's not a lot that looks any different from this report than than from most. They continue to uh, reacquire their shares, and that's that's probably the most exciting thing that this company does. So let's talk about those repurchases because they have two billion to go on a share repurchase authorization. Bought back more than two hundred and twenty million in the quarter. This is a similar tactic from two very different companies. So, for a newer investor, we talked about how Zoom is using share buybacks. How does AutoZone use buybacks differently to increase shareholder return? Sure. Well, in in uh, 2002, AutoZone had about a uh, about 100 million shares out. Uh, that was down to about 80 million by 2005. About 60 million by 2009. About 40 million by 2012, they're down below 20 million today. So if you've just bought and held 22 years ago, there there's 19 million shares out. Uh, you own about six x uh, what you owned almost uh, in terms of your your percentage ownership of the company. They're relentless share repurchasers. They've done that by uh, increasing debt during a time. During most of that twenty years, where debt was extremely cheap and is not as cheap as it was, so the continuing use of debt uh, to to do this is is not going to have the same returns uh, that it has had. But uh, it's a phenomenal uh, stock story, and the it could have used all that money to um, pay dividends, but it, it bought back. Stock and and as I say, there are fewer than twenty million shares. Where once upon a time there were a hundred million, so uh, it's it's just been a very very big win for shareholders. I want to wrap up with this story about Wendy's, where Wendy's bill appears to be taking a note from Uber. CEO Kirk Tanner said to analysts that quote. Beginning as early as 2025, we will begin in test. We will begin testing more enhanced features like dynamic pricing and day part offerings, along with AI-enabled menu changes and suggestive selling." End quote. Love it. 
This means that a burger price essentially could go up at lunch rush, down during an afternoon lull, back up at dinner. We're going to surge price burgers. Is this a good idea? It works for Uber. I I think it's an it's an interesting idea and therefore good enough to test. Uh, yeah. And and it makes some sense. There's a lot of uh, downtime uh, in the slower hours. Why not give people better prices uh, during those hours to fill some seats and uh, keep the employees uh, busy during what otherwise are, are lull times? I think that uh, for the most part, uh, you, people have sort of set times for breakfast, lunch, dinner. A little bit variable. You can maybe. Uh, Make some more money during those those slower times. Of course, the the downside is this is interpreted as raising prices, which in fact might be the case when you start talking about surge prices. Uh, that's what it feels like, and and we'll see that this is a uh, marketing challenge to, I guess, hit the cheaper prices uh, at, at the slower times rather than let the story become. Uh, we we just uh, we're, we're charging more for the same thing at different times. I think it's very funny that we're going to use these AI tools and digital menu boards to just get back. It's to just get back to happy hour, where we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna spend millions, tens of millions of dollars for all of this software to figure out what many bars and restaurants have already figured out, which is that between three and five p.m. you can get some traffic by by uh, lowering prices on select menu items. To me, it'll be a big mistake if if someone shows up at the same time multiple days and the prices are different even slightly. Like I, I, I know as a customer, I would be completely annoyed by that. And this is, you know, maybe they're listening to the data analytics folks a little bit more than the than the people buying burgers. Uh, well, if if you show up a, a little bit early and you get a better price than you were expecting, yeah. then. You might be uh, incentivized to to repeat that, uh, but yes, it, it is a challenge to bring this uh, into reality in a way where people interpret their experience as better because of the the different pricing. At what point? So, just a single Wendy's cheeseburger. At what point are you turning? You've gotten to the the drive through, and you've seen the menu price. What's your, what's your break even point? What's the point at which you're just going to go home? And listen to Kellogg CEO Gary Pilnick's advice, and just making make some cereal for dinner. Where are you turning around on that burger? <laughs> for a Wendy's burger, yeah, uh, single. I, when I add, you know, it's probably at a price that is already higher than what I'm what I'm willing to pay. Uh, although I, I don't have anything against the Wendy's burger, it's been a while since I've had one, and uh, I think I would be shocked at, at what the price is, uh, even at the best hour of the day. So, uh, boy, if, if they were charging for a single, yeah, you could still. I, I mean, there's still you can get a single for for a few bucks. It's not too bad. For four eighty five, maybe four eighty five. Okay, four eighty five. I started like eh, there's, there's maybe just some fries. I mean, <laughs> It's been a tough look, though, with the the dynamic pricing, and then you had Kellogg CEO, as I mentioned, Gary Pilnick, touting. He goes on CNBC. It, it it basically says that we have a new marketing campaign, which is cereal for dinner, because food's so expensive, people can just start eating cereal for dinner and a piece of fruit. It's less than a buck per serving. So why don't why don't you all do that? We're we're here for the consumer. It's it's a tough thing to say in front of palm trees. I I guess you know the the ability of. Um 
people to draw offense. Like, why isn't he creating a solution that is, you know, comprehensively addressing all food prices rather than like cereal for dinner? It's it's easy. It is cheap. Um, it's I think uh, I've been known to to do that just because of uh, not not the price, but just uh, I I haven't given uh, dinner any thought, and there is nothing here to eat <laughs> except some cereal. You're not. No one's eating cereal for dinner proudly. And I think on it. Here's no. why people took offense. It's because he didn't do cereal for lunch. No one would have cared if he said cereal for lunch. But because dinner, it's like the big family meal. That's why people got upset. I think. I think that's a key reason no one's talking about. I well, I didn't see the actual interview, and and as you say, it did get some attention. Uh, for, but but it doesn't take much to get attention for for a story to blow up nationally anymore. Uh, just have the sort of the the, the wrong background uh, behind you while you're making the case for for something that is uh, reasonable. Uh, I think that people have had cereal for dinner uh, before this, and and will have cereal for dinner again, whether Kellogg's. Can use it in a way, and this is the bigger problem for them to get people to maintain their consumption of cereal. It's a it's a declining um, item in, in the uh, in the diet of, of Americans and has been for a while. So, despite its uh, being a, a part and really only a part of a completely nutritious breakfast or completely nutritious dinner, now uh, it's it's becoming a smaller and smaller part. Anyway, Bill Barker, as always, thank you for your time and your insight. Thank you. Ricky Malvi with Motley Full Money here to tell you about a vehicle that is redefining sporting luxury, the Range Rover Sport. The first thing I noticed when I sat down in the driver's seat is that I felt like I was in a cockpit. You're up off the ground in a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. I also really appreciated the overhead 360-degree camera view that let me know exactly where I was going as I was backing out of the parking space. I went for a drive in the Range Rover Sport out in Littleton, Colorado, tested the accelerator just a little bit, and felt the performance and agility. It's an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. To put it plainly, the Range Rover Sport is powerful. It's also quiet and comfortable. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. I'd like to invite you to visit LandRoverUSA.com to learn more about the Range Rover Sport. Got a question for the show? Maybe some feedback or a guest idea. Send us an email at podcasts at fool.com. That is podcasts with an S at fool.com. Up next, Allison Southwick and Robert Brokamp are tackling some of the questions that you emailed in about 403Bs, pensions, and saving for kids. question comes from Jum. I have been contributing to my 403b plan every year with an employer match. For the first 10 years, I contributed to a traditional 403b, and in the past six years, I have switched my contributions to a Roth 403b. 
I am nowhere near retirement, but I just want to learn and understand how will the money be characterized when I take it out? Will it be confusing at the time of distribution since it is mixed in this one account? Also, do I have the choice of rolling it over, maybe converting it all into a Roth at my retirement? Thank you for always bringing great content daily. I really appreciate the work that everyone at The Fool is doing to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. Oh, thank you. Yes, that's very kind of you, Jim. So kind. you have a mix of pre-tax traditional and Roth money in your account. And this would also be the case if you had been contributing to a Roth the whole time, because the employer match always goes into a traditional account. The Secure 2.0 Act passed at the end of 2022 was supposed to allow employer contributions to go into a Roth accounts, but that has had trouble getting off the ground because the IRS needs to clarify a few things. So that option will eventually be available, but for now, match money goes into traditional accounts. So what happens when you take a withdrawal from an account that has both traditional and Roth money? Well, each withdrawal is partially taxable and partially tax-free, proportionate to how much each type of the money is in your account. So, for example, if 75% of your account is in traditional pre-tax money, then 75% of each withdrawal will be taxable. The other 25% will be tax-free from the Roth, assuming, by the way, of course, you're following the rules, which is you have to be 59 and a half, and the account has to have been open for five years. Um, now, what you can do, though, when you leave your employer, maybe because you've retired, you can roll the money over to two separate IRAs, a traditional IRA for the traditional money and a Roth IRA for the Roth money. And then you can choose which account to take withdrawals from in any given year of your retirement, depending on which makes the most sense for your tax situation at the time. Quick note about the five-year rules with the Roth, by the way. If you roll your 403B over to a new Roth IRA, and that is your very first Roth IRA, that starts the whole five-year clock over. So you want to open up a Roth IRA at least five years before you retire so you can roll money over to that account. Uh, and now, finally, you asked if you could convert all your money into a Roth when you roll it over. The answer is yes. You could convert your traditional money to the Roth. But the amount that you convert will be added to your taxable income in that year, which could lead to a pretty hefty tax bill. It's not a free lunch. Our next question comes from TMF Frugal. If a large bank, say Charles Schwab, fails and they house your brokerage and IRA accounts, are your investments safe? Is there a dollar limit on how much would be protected? Like the FDIC protects up to $250,000. I have over $800,000 in investments in Charles Schwab brokerage and IRA accounts and curious if I need to start splitting things up. Well, yeah, just as the FDIC insurance bank accounts, the Securities Investor Protection Corporation, also sometimes called the SIPC, sometimes called SIPIC, uh, it insures brokerage accounts up to $500,000 per account, including up to $250,000 in cash. Uh, keep in mind that this is just insuring against the brokerage failing and, and in some cases of fraud, but it doesn't insure against you know your stocks dropping in value. Um, also, the coverage doesn't extend to all investments. You know, it doesn't cover things like commodity futures contracts, limited partnerships, uh, and currencies, including cryptocurrencies, but it does cover most standard stocks, bonds, mutual funds, stuff like that. The coverage is per account type. So, for example, if you have both a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA with a single broker, you get $500,000 for each of them. 
However, if you have two Roth IRAs with a brokerage, then the compound coverage is just that $500,000. And you should visit the CIPIC website to see the different account types that qualify for separate coverage. By the way, this is the same with FDIC. You could have more than $250,000 coverage with a single bank, depending on how those accounts are titled. Um, so, also, you should know that in most situations, brokerage firms are required to segregate accounts and prevent the commingling of client assets and company assets. And most brokerages actually have a third party custodian that holds the accounts and holds the assets. So, that's an extra layer of protection. And most have additional insurance on top of the CIPIC insurance, though frankly, it's likely not sufficient to cover if like one of these big brokerages fail. Um, so, what happens when the brokerage fails? Well, in most cases, investors will receive any stocks or bonds that they own in kind rather than having to just accept their cash value. What usually happens, frankly, is that the accounts are transferred to another brokerage that buys the failing brokerage. And then you have the option of just staying with that brokerage or transferring the account to someone else. And if you're still unsure about whether your brokerage account or your particular investments are covered, check out the CIPIC website. It feels like, though, in practicality, if if someone like Schwab were to go under, then there'd have to be a whole lot going wrong in our financial system for that to happen, right? Right. I mean, the last time this happened was with Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, um, and that was definitely that definitely presaged the the Great Recession. So it would be it would be a bad sign. Our next question comes from Jet. New fool here. I'm 24 years old and really getting into personal finance and long term investment strategies. That's awesome news, Jet. Currently an MBA student who is finishing up this spring. Three months ago, I transferred an UTMA into my name. The money is currently in an actively managed mutual fund that has a 0.25% expense ratio and underperformed the market. The money has been in that mutual fund untouched for almost a decade. I want to sell and transfer the money into an S&P 500 index fund. If I do this, will the capital gains be considered short-term because it has been less than a year since it was officially transferred over to me? Or since it has been held untouched for over a year under the UTMA, are the capital gains considered long-term? Yeah, well, congrats on getting into personal finance and investing at such a young age. It's uh, great news and definitely an outstanding way to launch into adulthood. Future Jet is going to be very, very thankful. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, just so we're all on the same page, an UTMA is a custodial account that allows you know some well-meaning adult to create an investment portfolio for a minor. And as soon as the money is contributed, the money irrevocably becomes the property of that minor. And the adult acts as custodian for the account, making investment decisions and maybe making decisions about withdrawals uh, until the minor reaches the age of majority. And that varies from state to state. But at that point, the kid takes over the account. And it sounds like this is what has happened with Jet and her or his account. The key here is that the mutual fund in this account always belonged to Jet. So the cost basis and the holding period didn't change when Jet took over the account. So the sale would be taxed as a long term capital gain except for any gains made on dividends or distributions that were reinvested over the past 12 months. Our next question comes from Sad Dad in Illinois. My 32-year-old son passed away in 2023. Oh, Sad Dad, we are we are very sad to hear about that. That's probably one of the most tragic things I can imagine is losing a child. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oof. All right, he has no will, no wife, and no children. I am his father and the court-appointed administrator of his estate. Here's my question. His three siblings, ages 30, 31, and 34, will receive a fair amount in 401k, IRA, and Roth money. According to the 10-year rule in the SECURE 2.0 Act, my three surviving adult children will have to do the required RMDs starting at the end of 2024. Pending IRS changes could alter that. 
I believe that the two younger siblings would be considered, quote, eligible designated beneficiaries and could use their life expectancy to calculate their RMD. My question is about the 34-year-old. Most articles I have read say 10 years younger. Some say within 10 years of the account owner's age. The IRS website is difficult to interpret this difference. Oh, you don't say. I want to give them accurate advice. What do you think? Thank you and love your podcast for many years. Makes my drives much more enjoyable. Glad to hear it. All right, bro. Yeah, so I'll just repeat. I'm so sorry to hear about your loss. Um, sad dad. My oldest daughter is 32, and I can only imagine what you and your family have gone through losing someone so young. Um, so really, you have my sincere condolences. And after that loss, you now have to settle your son's estate, which I know isn't easy. Um, as you're finding, the rules that govern the inheritance of retirement accounts are surprisingly and maddeningly complicated, um, partially because they're not even yet set in stone due to some changes in the laws over the last few years. The main questions surround how soon a beneficiary has to drain the account. It could be five years, or 10 years, or the rest of the beneficiary's lifetime, depending on several factors. The people who have the most flexibility are these, quote, eligible designated beneficiaries. So, let's start with the designated part. It means that the decedent had filled out the forms that name specific people to inherit their retirement accounts, and everyone should, should fill out these forms. In most situations, it takes only a few minutes, and you can do it online. You will be doing your heirs a huge favor by filling these out. Besides giving your heirs more flexibility with withdrawals, the account will also bypass probate, which is the time-consuming and, and sometimes expensive process of settling an estate. So, do everything you can to have as much of your property as possible bypass probate, which starts with filling out these beneficiary forms. Oh, it's also our, the one we usually remind people, also make sure that it's up to date because you don't want your ex-husband to get all your money. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Absolutely. And you know, something else may have happened, right? You might have had other kids and things like that. So, yeah, very important to update it. All right. So, that's the important part of the designated. Now, let's get into the eligible part. This is a group of people that includes spouses and people who are no more than 10 years younger than the person who passed away. They can spread withdrawals out over much longer periods, in most cases, over the course of their lives, which means that most of the money could stay in the account growing on a tax advantage basis. So, the dad here is wondering whether the 34-year-old is considered an eligible designated beneficiary by not being more than 10 years older than the son who passed away. And I looked through the IRS code for clarification, and unfortunately, it seems to me that the 34-year-old is not eligible. The code clearly states that the person has to be within 10 years younger than the person who passed away. But this is truly a complicated and changing topic. So, you or your 34-year-old should really check with an expert, a CPA, someone like that, once he or she has taken possession of the account. All right, our last question today comes from Tony. My wife is a teacher and her retirement is through a state-run pension. As such, she does not contribute to Social Security. It is our understanding that for this reason, she would not be able to collect my Social Security if and when something happens to me. This brings about a lot of questions. Are there any loopholes that would allow her to collect my Social Security in the event of my passing? For example, what if she worked another job for, say, five years and contributed to Social Security throughout that job? If she can't collect it, can I make my two sons the beneficiaries? I would like to think my benefits would continue to my family as permissible by the rules upon my passing. What are my options? And are there any actions I can or should take now? I'm 54 and she is 50. I appreciate any information you can provide. Bro, provide some information. Okay. Well, Tony, this is known as the government pension offset. 
or GPO. And the thought behind it is that Congress intended for Social Security spousal and survivor benefits to support non-working spouses who are raising a family and are financially dependent on a working spouse, at least according to the Social Security Administration website. And if you or your spouse have your own career earning a pension, then you don't need spousal and widow's benefits quite as much. Again, this isn't in my opinion. This is just the rationale behind the rule. And by the way, the same thing sort of happens with Social Security to some degree. A worker won't receive a spousal benefit if her or his own benefit is higher than what her spousal benefit would be. Um, as for the GPO, it reduces spouse, widow, and widower benefits by at least two-thirds of the person's own monthly government pension based on that work that was not covered by Social Security. Uh, and if two-thirds of that pension is more than your Social Security benefit, you'll get zero. So it's possible that Tony's wife could still receive some spousal or widow benefit. Uh, and there's a GPO calculator on the Social Security website he can use to figure it out. But because it's reduced by the amount that his wife will receive from her pension, that's really what will determine the amount of the reduction. So if she were to work for another job that was covered by Social Security, that really wouldn't directly change the offset. And finally, some good news. This just affects the spouse's benefit. So Tony's kids would still be eligible for their survival benefits. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Ricky Mulvey. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.